and welcome to this week's episode of Pod's Own Country, the politics podcast from the Yorkshire Post. My name is Caitlin Doherty and I am your Westminster correspondent. This week's guest is political commentator and author Marie LeConte and we have had a chat about her new book Honourable Misfits about some of the weird and wonderful MPs that have represented Yorkshire throughout history as well as some from more further afield up and down the country. The life of an MP is a strange one. Um, They have to split their time between the Westminster bubble and their constituency. It takes a life of dedication, a very understanding family and probably a little bit of exhaustion along the way. It was quite nice to hear in my chat with Marie how MPs have always been throughout history. Maybe a collection of people who are slight oddballs or certainly people who are running on nowhere near enough sleep. Speaking of MPs, they have all been gathered in very concentrated numbers over the last couple of weeks. After Labour had their annual gathering last week, the big political news of this week has been the Conservative Party conference which took place in Manchester. The events last year were held virtually, um, as was everything else, as a result of the pandemic. So this was the first opportunity for Boris Johnson to speak en masse to the party membership since their landslide election victory in December 2019, which gave them an 80-seat majority. Um, but in contrast to some other years, party conferences don't seem to have made as many headlines this year. Perhaps that's not surprising given the cost of living crisis that's unfolding around all of us. Petrol has been hard to get hold of, household bills have been going up and with furlough and the universal credit uplift coming to an end, there have been real concerns from charities, think tanks and even MPs that there will be people not able to make ends meet this winter. But despite those issues, I would say that the mood at Tory party conference was pretty jubilant. Ministers, MPs and members were overjoyed with the speech from Boris Johnson, which only actually laid out details of one policy. And despite dozens of panels and talks over the four day event dedicated to the topic, I'm not sure whether anybody will have come away any closer to finding out what levelling up actually consists of. It's clear that Boris Johnson is a man fairly confident in his position at number 10 for the moment. And is that any surprise, given that Labour are performing generally not too well in the polls? As always, we will keep asking the questions on this subject and we'll keep you up to date as and when anything develops. Now, as Westminster takes a day or two to recover from two weeks on the road, please enjoy this chat with Marie and I will speak to you next week. Hi, I am here this week with Marie Leconte, who is a French freelance journalist working in London, specialising in politics. She is the author of Honourable Misfits, a book about Britain's weird history and the people we've ended up with as MPs, who I think it would be fair to say are fairly eclectic and eccentric. There are certainly some, um, some interesting ones that we find out along the way, aren't there, Marie? Um, yeah, so to be completely honest, so um, it was actually a publishing house who got in touch with my agent uh, with the idea for this book. And generally at first I thought, okay, well, they want me to write something about, you know, the kind of, yeah, ex- most eccentric British MP throughout history. And I was like, you know, is there really a book in there? Like, is there really going to be enough to write about? Um, and yeah, it turns out absolutely, just 100%, that there are more than enough eccentric MPs. 
I probably could have written a follow-up. I know I've had a few people ask, you know, why did you do nothing about the House of Lords? Um, and, you know, and the answer just had to be, you know, this book could not be 700 pages long. That is just it. I had to stop somewhere. There <laughs> yeah. was so much material. Yeah. Um, I just mentioned to you before we started, I've made um, a list of notes of sort of the, the various Yorkshire MPs that you talk about clearly something we're going to be interested in talking about and I've just ended up with the words selfridges egg turnip and buffalo and I feel like every single person that you've spoken about in this book has one thing that makes you go what and pull a funny (laughs) face and almost like you can't believe that a that person existed and b was given significant influence over our legislation and political system Hmm. it's well yes and also I think and I kind of got that writing the book as well of obviously I think Britain likes to pride itself on being you know, one of the oldest democracies in the world. And Parliament is obviously, I believe, the oldest Parliament in the world, if not you know, one of the oldest. But, all, but, but in reality, when you kind of read up on what Parliament was like, you know, four, five, six hundred years ago, it was nothing like the Parliament is today. Like quite often, you know, it was the case of a man, because it was always a man uh, from a very posh background going, uh, you know, got a bit of a gap in my diary at the moment. You know, not really sure what to do with myself. Um, guess I'll ask my dad for a seat. And then, you know, and then they'd kind of become an MP for one, you know, and either kind of take to it or just go, actually, you know, that's boring. Now, there's actually one MP, I can't remember his name, sadly, but um, she got elected by basically bribing uh, every voter, I think the equivalent of about £500 uh, in today's money per person, got elected and then sat in the chamber of the House of Commons for half an hour and then thought, you know what, not for me, and then never returned. <laughs> it is somewhat incredible to, to think about people doing that, especially when... I know this has been, it's been a very intense sort of five years in politics regardless, but if there were any MP, I mean, surely there are some that are in the chamber more than others nowadays, but if there were any MP that were trying to get away with sitting there for five <laughs> minutes and then giving up the ghost, they'd be all over the front pages in days, surely. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. And I think um, it's also one other interesting thing. I think that's a change that's quite recent as well, is that a lot of these MPs just never went to their constituencies. Um, and, you know, and, and you could read like quite amusing stories, even from about 100 years ago, just saying, oh, actually, you know, and like XMP was doing their annual visit to the constituency. You know, they had a lovely two days there. We'll see them again next year for Christmas. <laughs> and obviously, and as you said, you know, something that could not happen now, I think, even if an MP spends most of their recess in London, you know, that will end up probably in the local paper or even in the national paper. Mm-hmm. They're quite a prominent MP. So, yeah, no, certainly, weirdly, you know, uh, we definitely have considerably better MPs now than I think we ever used to. Mm. I would like to bring you around to the to several of your anecdotes, stories, tales, whatever you would like to call them in in your book, because Yorkshire at the moment has uh, 54 MPs. I am on the eye out. I'm keeping an eye on 54 MPs on the whole of this patch, (laughs) um, which feels like quite a big chunk when you consider that there are only 650 of them. But historically, obviously, constituencies have been different. Um, areas have been broken up and mushed back together again. But you still have quite a chunk of your book taken up by tales of people who are in this area or very, very close to. Um, the three that sort of captured me the most, I would say, were William Payne Galway. Yes. Excuse me if I butcher this name. Ignaz Trebich Lincoln who was from Darlington, so uh, County Durham rather than Yorkshire, and Victor Grayson. Can you tell us any more about any of any of them? Uh, yes, yeah, so Payne Galway is, interestingly, I would say, 
So I wrote about him and find him quite amusing. But that's, I think, the single MP I've had the most emails and comments about when people mentioned the book, uh, which I did not um, expect. And this William Payne Baldwin was, I think, if I remember correctly, a completely unremarkable MP in that he was there for a while. He was neither great nor terrible. He was, yeah, again, he was sort of there, one of those people who was sort of there. Um, and mm-hmm. the, the reason why he's uh, including honorable misfits is because uh, he was once walking in a field and tripped and fell on a turnip um, and died from the injury, um, which is just the dumbest death I, I can never think of. Can you imagine? Um, so, yeah, just gored to death by a turnip, which is deeply embarrassing. Um, yes. Yeah. yeah, interesting point you make there about how long he was around. He was the MP for Thirsk from 1851 until 1880. Even in today's money, that's that's quite a long tenure. It is, it is. But I think, yeah, if I remember correctly, even people, the, 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 you know, the good people of Thirsk um, at the time were sort of like, again, you know, he was yeah, neither great nor awful. He was sort of there. Mm. Um, but, you know, so in Yastrobit thinking, I would say actually by comparison, it's probably my favourite MP in the book. Um, even though it's quite hard to talk about him because his life was so long and so weird. So he was, uh, he was born in Hungary and uh, in the, is it, mm, hang on. He, yeah, he was born in Hungary um, and ended up actually moving to Britain as quite a young man because he'd been a thief in Hungary and was, I think, had been discovered and was going to be arrested. So he fled uh, to Britain, which is a great start really to a parliamentary career. Um and then, you know, so, so then sort of stuff happened. So he, because he was um, from a Jewish background, but decided to convert and then went to the US and to Canada as a missionary to try and convert people. Failed to do that, but then instead, I think, kind of shagged around for a while, then came back to Britain, uh, befriended some liberal grandee, convinced a liberal grandee to fund um, his great, uh, to fund his campaign to become the Liberal MP for Darlington in 1910. And he actually won, despite at the time not actually being a British citizen. I think he faked his papers. So he was an MP for a year. And then actually his problem was that being an MP at the time was not paid. Um, and he was a man in need of money. So he was actually, you know, again, yeah, that was a bad shout. My bad. Um, <laughs> so left Parliament again. And then in the end, I, I kind of nearly don't want to spoil it because there's so much. But he sort of keeps popping up in the most random bits of the world in history, in the most random corners. So he was associated with like fascist militias and groups in Eastern Europe for quite a long time, despite obviously being a man of Jewish descent himself. Uh, he was a gambler in Monaco for a while. He was arrested by the FBI uh, and was in the US, but then kind of escaped. He became a monk uh, in China. Uh, he, for a while, was actually Japan's choice uh, for the Dalai Lama in Tibet. Um, and again, and it's kind of busy. It is this sort of fascinating tale because, A, again, as I said, you know, you can you never quite expect, even writing it, you could never expect, you know, where he would pop up next. But also, I think what I found really compelling about him is that, you know, I, I'd never heard of him before and I don't think anyone really has. And it's because he never really got good at any of the many, many, many things and schemes he did. So he was, what he was very good at was effectively reinventing himself again and again and again, but he never could be good and successful at doing one thing, which again, yeah, I just find incredibly compelling. And it's really quite this quite sad story, I suppose. Mm, he almost sounds like a, um, I don't know, almost like the main character in one of those time travel movies where people keep popping up in different narratives and, and they're, they're, they keep recurring and, you know, reinventing themselves as something else. He does a kind of one of the like secondary characters in a Doctor Who episode, like maybe a Christmas Doctor Who episode. 
to go that slight mm. vibe of you know not fully villain but no actually yeah like the sort of person who ends up um teaming up with the aliens even though the doctor is like don't do this don't do this and mm. then they do and then it goes terribly for you know for them and for the aliens as well i have to say my favorite was probably victor grayson who was um mp for colm valley in the early 1900s because it reminded me sorry to keep drawing analogies to film and tv it read like the perfect script of a spooks episode <laughs> you know the, uh, <laughs> the the old bbc uh, mi5 drama from from the noughties he he uncovered something not very savory going on in number 10 didn't he yes it was hang on shit actually just tiny bit of a that was wait, so, <laughs> hang on so it was cash for was it cash for house of lords i can't remember now uh, uh, honors. Honors, honors i, honors, I think yes. you believed yeah okay yeah so that's right um yes i think he discovered uh the cash for honors uh scandal that was kind of unfolding in number 10 in secret um and yeah, and, and, and again, and it's kind of interesting because he was convinced he was being followed, you know, by the stakes. He was a very left-wing MP and he was, yeah, convinced that, you know, big state was, was out to get him. Um, and, and he just looked like he was being very paranoid. And that's, I think, um, if I remember correctly as well, he was struggling with alcoholism and a number of personal problems as well. So I think that was kind of seen as him losing the plot a bit. Um, but then one day, so one day he was out drinking with friends. Um, and then got a phone call in this hotel, I think, on the Strand in London, um, and said, oh, you know, I've got to go to this meeting, I've got to go meet someone, I'll be back in an hour, something along those lines, and never came back, and just disappeared without a trace, and, and, and that was that, and to this day, we do not have the faintest clue of what happened to Victor Grayson, uh, which is, yeah, again, remarkably compelling. It's, I think, one thing that ties all of these people together, and it's the same throughout the book, not just with the MPs around, you know, Yorkshire and the Northeast. Extraordinary things happen to them. Do you think it's a case of the job of being an MP attracts people who are maybe eccentric, a little different, have these things happen to them? Or is it a case of trouble follows them? Oh, that's a really good question. I think it's a bit of both. And I think um, the slightly boring answer I would give as well is that... Um, you know, is that for a lot of the time covered um, in this book, because I think I, I did include a few people from the kind of, you know, mid uh, 20th century, but not many. Most are kind of like much um, from much earlier than that. Um, and at the time, I think it was just the case that you could only really become an MP if you're, again, like a man from a very posh background. Um, and I just think, you know, kind of especially doing my research and stuff, it, it, it just made you profoundly weird, I think, to not have to work really for a living. And you have that sort of status and live in that sort of gilded cage and be able to do whatever you want to do. So I think that's kind of why a lot of those people just turned out to be, you know, like, were either weird from the very beginning, like quite a lot of them as well, like if you read the full biographies, just end up becoming progressively weirder and weirder as they get older. So I think it, it, mm -hmm. it is mostly a product, I think, of, of the uh, of the English mostly caste system um, rather than politics in itself. Um, but that being said, I suppose, you know, it did, it, it did take a certain type of person, I think, to say, actually, you know, I do, I do want to be a politician where, you know, for example, I'm, I'm thinking of just myself. If I were, sort of, you know, richer than God and did not have to do anything, I would not become an MP. That would not cross my mind for even one minute. So I think, yeah, there's a certain crossover here of that, A, people so rich, they just become a bit weird. Um, but B, also, what would compel you to join Parliament in those circumstances? Mm. Do you think we've... We've broken out of that. I know that the chamber is 
a lot more diverse than it was even 20 years ago, 50 years ago, certainly more so than 100 years ago. But do you think that generally, you know, fortune and a position as an MP, regardless of which side you're on, favours people who come from that privileged, well-supported background, whether that be in terms of money or education or however else you may want to frame it? Oh, yes and no. Um, I think I think it's definitely changed in that if you just happen to be a very rich and posh person with no connections personally or through your family to Westminster, actually that's not going to be easier for you at all to get into politics. Um, but instead, I think you do certainly still have those links. And again, even writing the book, it got quite tedious um, after a while because nearly every MP had to say, went to Eton, educated at Oxford, no, 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 no. Generally, after this, you know, 40th time, you're just like, okay, you get the gist. Um, and, you know, and, and that's still certainly the case. If you see, you know, people like obviously Boris Johnson and David Cameron have known each other since they were children. <laughs> so, so clearly, you know, that, that I think that that still certainly happens that if you went to a certain school, a certain university, then you kind of created the sort of networks that will be useful once you get into politics. But I think it's even more broadly than that as well. Like quite often, if you look at, you know, and I guess, you know, Labour Party and Conservative Party, often the people who do get elected, um, apart from a few, um, a few exceptions, are people who've kind of been in those circles for quite a long time. So, you know, they were part of the Labour Club or the Conservative Club at university and stuff. So even if they're not from the certain, you know, again, into a posh background or anything, I think it, it still certainly helps to be from, you know, to have had a certain type of early years, I guess, to end up um, getting selected and then being elected as a member of parliament. Mm. And I think in some way that probably contributes to the whole I don't like the term but I think it's appropriate in this instance in this instance Westminster bubble image Mm. a lot of people seem to think that it's a really really insular society with people making decisions among themselves to tell people who are journalists who are very much like themselves in some ways and then it just sort of the whole information just goes round in this big circle from you know MP to journalist to minister and back round again do you think do you think that can be broken and if so, how? I realise that's a very big question for, you know, just two journalists to be chatting about. <laughs> um, I'm going to do actually a bit of like completely shameless self-promotion on that, which is that I've sort of, so my first book is kind of on that and I guess addresses some of these questions. So haven't you heard Gossip, Politics and Power available in all good bookshops? <laughs> um, and yeah, and the answer, because I guess you know, in that book, I kind of looked at obviously the gossip in Westminster and in British politics, but also more broadly, the kind of role of the personal and the political. Um, and the role of kind of, again, you know, these informal conversations, informal connections and stuff and kind of how that shapes um, policymaking, you know, in the end. Um, and I guess, I don't know, so, so I guess the conclusion I sort of reached was that the current situation is not ideal because, as you said, you know, that's still something that exists. And if you look at the kind of information ecosystem in Westminster, it it is very close and quite often it does become a feedback loop, I think. Um, but the problem is... Um, that, you know, it's not clear to me at all how you change that, to be blunt. You know, how you change that without making it worse in some other way. Mm. Um, but, you yeah, know, and, and that's, again, that's probably more haven't heard than honourable misfits. But um, but one of the things that struck me the most when I became a political journalist and I started having lunches with MPs and stuff was that, so, you know, in my head, I thought, OK, I'm going for lunch with a politician. What's going to happen is that it's effectively going to be an informal interview, right? You know, well, just like we'll sit down and we'll have our chicken or whatever. And I'll ask them some questions about what's going on in politics and then they'll answer them and they'll do that. We weren't actually, you know, and that sort of turned up to my first few lunches and they were like, they were as keen to hear 
about what I'd heard and what I'd seen recently than the other way around. Um, and actually, I was like, oh, hang on. And it was genuinely a shock, you know, neither in a good nor a bad way. But it was shock. I was like, oh, no, actually, as a journalist, I have to entirely become part of that ecosystem that I'm basically informing MPs of stuff that happens in Westminster. And that's quite a nod role to play when you're at the same time reporting on what those MPs do. Um, I mean, mm. I don't know what your experience has been like, but yeah, but that's something that really struck me. And anyways, yeah, I completely agree. But then again, that's kind of the issue, I think. How do you solve that? I am genuinely not sure. Um, mm. Yeah. There are definitely times when I've picked up the phone to um, go and ask an MP for a comment on a story, whether, uh, you know, whether it's national, whether it's local, however big or small that story may be and I have been telling them the news <laughs> and then they've sort of offhandedly made made up a comment or reaction very kindly on the phone that I've jotted down but then they've come back to me maybe half an hour later and gone hang on no I've read a bit more about this can we change it <laughs> um because people there is just so much information floating around that you know it's not anybody's fault or you know nobody's trying to sneak anybody either way but it's just sometimes some people get to that information first there's that and also, um, yeah also i think it's that mps are quite siloed as well so you know mps can only ever know what they know because of who they know i guess that's a very clunky sentence i apologize but you know fundamentally if you're mm. an mp you're you know overwhelmingly more likely to talk to mps in your own party or in your own faction or you know the mps down your own corridor etc uh, whereas I think as a journalist, you do talk to a wider sort of like breadth of people. So, you know, that's why I think they also come to us for information, even though, again, you know, is that is that entirely healthy? Is that entirely ethical? I'm not sure. Hmm. Speaking of the MPs we've got now, I know your book is fairly historical. Can you foresee MPs who we have at the moment or does the system still work in a way that in 50 years time there could be a rewrite of honorable misfits and the people that we've got sat in the chamber today could be filling slots hmm. Um, hmm. yes and no i mean it, it, it will surprise you to hear that you are not the first person to ask this question um, <laughs> and and i'm still and yeah my answer i think is slightly different each time because i'm not entirely sure so i think there are some mps you can look at um and think okay you know that's definitely a bit of a misfit but i don't know so i think jacob Rees smog right it is the obvious example, I think. Mm-hmm. But then arguably, you know, was he, I think pre, pre-Brexit pre referendum, Jacob Rees-Mogg would have been a complete shoe-in um, of, you know, the kind of like slightly weird toff who was uh, trading stocks when he was 12 and he always keeps cream eggs in his pockets and he's still friends with his nanny and all of that. You know, obviously that's the sort of person you'd include, but I think by becoming a frontbencher and then becoming a secretary of state, that's kind of changed slightly. I think a misfit, um, that's actually a very long and tedious uh, conversation I had with uh, my ex-partner a few months ago of saying, you know, like, can you be a misfit if you really want power? Um, and if you do manage mm-hmm. to get it, because we're kind of talking about it in the context of Boris Johnson, of saying, actually, you know, yeah, can you really be a misfit is re- if really what you want is to be in charge and then you do eventually get to be in charge. So I think, yeah, quite a lot of those people, again, you know, Boris as well, I think there's, there's a version of Boris Johnson that could have been in the book. I'm not convinced that the Boris Johnson we've ended up with uh, is someone who would be a misfit so so yes I'm not sure and you know and as I, I do say as I do say in the introduction of the book as well part of the reason why I only went for long dead MPs you know the first one being I did not want to get sued um but but, you know, but the second one was also I think you kind of need to be able to look at someone's entire life with some distance in order to decide whether you know in, in order to actually get I think a real sense and feeling of their character i suppose which is much harder to do if it's someone you're kind of covering on the day-to-day 
and he's also still very much mm. alive and in parliament mm. that's really really interesting because it's sort of it almost makes you think that well inevitably if you've got this group of you know 650 very well connected in the grand scheme compared to most people you know with quite a lot of money people eventually you are going to have a couple of them who stick out in in one way or another um but thank you very much for joining me it has been very very interesting to talk to you and i really appreciate your time and i hope that at some point in 50 years time or 100 years time somebody else takes up the same mantle (laughs) and we see who fits the bill again i agree yes thank you very much for having me thank you Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Podzone Country. If you have any topics you think we should be covering or any stories you think that we should be digging into, please get in touch with me over email on caitlin.doherty at jpress.co.uk. I'll speak to you next week.